Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll begin at verse 31 and go to 38. Says the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes a harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us humility as we approach it, that you would, you would uh, by the preaching of your word, that you would uh, rebuke and correct to train us in righteousness, that we would be adequate, equipped for every good work. Father, we pray that you would bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be seated. <clears throat> so as we've worked through the passage concerning the woman at the well, we've been skipping uh, over this aside in the middle of the passage. Um, after the woman at the well leaves and goes into the city as an evangelist, uh, the disciples who had gone uh, into that same city to uh, procure some victuals, I guess you say it, um, return with that food and urge Jesus to eat. They urge him to eat. They know he's weary from his traveling as well, right? That's the original question that, that was given to the woman at the well. Um, get me something to drink. I'm thirsty. And so his disciples come back and they expect him to be hungry and... They urge him to eat, but always ready to minister. That's what Jesus is, always ready to minister. Even when he's hungry and thirsty, his first thought is ministry. His, thirst, his thir first thought is, is who's before me and what needs to be said. So he, Jesus, our Lord, responds to their request with a, again, provocative statement. They say, Rabbi, eat, and he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Right? I mean, it, it's just one of those statements where it, it could be taken a number of different ways. And the way most people would take it would be, he's got some food, he doesn't need what we brought. Right? Um, like Nicodemus and the second birth and the woman at the well with the living water, right? They, they interpret Jesus' words at face value. No one, no one brought him any water, did he? Or no one brought any, him something to eat, did he? And then, as in other cases, Jesus tells 
goes on to tell, okay, here's what I'm really asking. Here's what, what that, that, that means. And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Once again, as will will be the case throughout the entire gospel of John, the veil is lifted and we are allowed to see the interaction between the persons of the Trinity and the order of the Trinity we're allowed to see here. In this case, we learn a number of things about how Jesus relates to his Father. Right? First, the Son was sent. The Son was sent by the Father. Second, the Son was sent for a purpose. The Son was sent by the Father to do his will. And then third, the Son was sent by the Father to do his will by accomplishing this work that was given to Jesus to finish. So let's take each of those truths in turn. The Son was sent by the Father already. We've looked at John 3 a few weeks ago, a few months ago, John 3, where Jesus reveals that he was sent by the Father because of what? Because God loves the world, right? He was sent by the Father because the Father loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Right? So that is God sending. In my sermon on that passage, I gave this explanation. God loves mankind. Full stop. Right? God loves mankind. He does, not, um, he does so even to the extent that he would send his son to die for miserable, God-hating, sinful men. Uh, Calvin says Christ brought life because the heavenly father loves the human race and wishes that they should not perish. It is God's character to be merciful and gracious. It is purely his love that provided his son as the necessary sacrifice for sinners. It's not because he's logical. It's not because he's committed to some some concept that obligates him to obey it. It's not because he's unconcerned about sin and devoid of anger and wrath for it. It's not because he pities mankind that he sent his son. It is his love, his love for man that brought about his son's conception by the Holy Spirit, birth, his life in obedience, and then his death on a tree. Because he is love, he made for his creatures a way of obtaining eternal life. Christ came into the world in consequence of the love of God. That is important. right? God's love is first and primary. And the cause of Christ's coming. We should not say that what Christ did is why God loves us. No, more properly, God loved us. And the result of that love is Christ's glorious, humiliating work. He was sent for that purpose. Now, it's quite clear that Jesus knows his mission. He knows this mission. He knows that he was sent by his Father He's just said it. 
and that he was sent for a specific purpose. He is not ignorant and somehow, you know, coming to realize that he just might be the Messiah. No, no, this is not a process of discovery for Jesus. This, he knows who he is, and he knows that he was sent, and he knows who sent him. He knows his work. He knows his identity. He knows the identity of his father. So how helpful it is to know that you have a mission, right? It's helpful to have a mission. Everybody has to have a mission. It's so awkward for us to have... I was thinking of, of Zeke at Chick-fil-A. It's so awkward when you have a new job and they don't tell you what to do. Be- and you don't have a mission, right? You're there, it's all new, you don't know anybody, and, and, and you just, you don't have a mission. And, um, you know, but... but we need to have a mission that we are to fulfill, and we need to be told that, whether we're relieving you know, somebody's aching tooth or making a shake or shepherding a soul. We need to know that we have that calling. You get hired to a new job, and no one tells you what your job description is, and you're left scratching your head. Am I sent to do this? Am I, what is my mission? Can I do this? Is this out of bounds? Is this in bounds? You know? Should I take initiative? Some people like it when I take initiative. Some people get angry when I take initiative. So it's very, it's wonderful to know what your mission is, to know by whom you're sent, to know the task that's to be accomplished. And Jesus is in that sweet spot. He knows this. He knows it. He knows what he has to do. Jesus knew his mission. He knew who sent him. He knew he was sent. He was sent because of the Father's love, and he was sent to accomplish the mission, singular mission of saving his people from their sins, and all that entailed. How long had Jesus known this? How long had Jesus known this mission? He had known it from before the foundation of the world. Get that. He had known this a long, long time. I mean, it's not even, you can't even speak about it in terms of time. He had known this eternally. Right? Before God's covenant with mankind, the persons of the Trinity covenanted with one another. This we call the Pactum Salutis, the Council of Peace or the Covenant of Redemption. Even before Christ's incarnation, the, the, the persons of the Trinity are, are covenanting with one another. And here's how one theologian, now stick with me through this, it's dense, but it's not really that dense, it's pretty obvious. Here's how one Dutch theologian, Herman Bovink, describes this covenant, but listen carefully, it's helpful. In the pact of salvation, Christ had from all eternity become our guarantor before God. Scholastic subtlety aside, this doctrine of the pact of salvation is rooted in a scriptural idea. Listen to this. For as mediator, the Son is subordinate to the Father, calls him God, is his servant, who has been assigned a task, who receives a reward after each one of these, he's putting like six different scripture references. I won't read all of those. um, Jesus received a reward for the obedience accomplished, 
The incarnation does not initiate this. Since the mediating work of Christ is present in Israel in the leadership of the angel of Yahweh, as passages in the New Testament suggest, since there is but one mediator between God and man, who is the same yesterday and today and forever, who was chosen as mediator from eternity, and as Logos existed from eternity as well. It seems appropriate to think of the work of redemption affected by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in covenantal terms and of the life of the three persons and the divine being as a covenantal life, a life of consummate self-consciousness, freedom, and communion. The character of this covenant life is a pact in the full sense of the word. The work of salvation is an undertaking of the three persons in which all cooperate and each performs a specific task. This pact of salvation, however, listen to this, is inextricably linked to the salvation history affected in time. The covenant of grace revealed in time does not hang in the air but rests on the eternal, unchanging foundation, the counsel and covenant of the triune God infallibly applied and executed. Christ does not begin to work only with and after his incarnation. And the Holy Spirit does not first begin his work with the outpouring on the day of Pentecost. Just as creation is a Trinitarian work, so too recreation was from the start a triune project. Right? So that, gets, that, that shows us that, that the Father is the Father eternally, the Son is the Son eternally, the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit eternally, and their work is eternally assigned. The Father sends, the Son mediates, and the Holy Spirit comforts. And that work is not initiated at the incarnation like our scholastics like to say. Now, these things are foundational to the very order of the triune God. That equally, equal in power and glory, but ordered, Trinitarian, covenanted life. Now, all of that is pretty dense. I realize that my whole point in sharing this is simply awe you with the fact that when Jesus said that he was sent... That was a decision that was made even before the foundation of the world. Before any man existed, he was sent. Even before the incarnation, he was uh, the, the voluntary covenanted mediator. So when Jesus says that he was sent, this is a mission that he entered from eternity past. But when the fullness of time came then, right, when the fullness of time came, then God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so something eternal is enacted in time. Something eternal and fixed is enacted then in the fullness of time in the incarnation and in the work he did. So our salvation, broadly speaking, is the reason that the Son of God was sent by his Father. More specifically, though, look at how our text defines the purpose for which the Son was sent, that he might do the will of his Father. 
and that he might accomplish the Father's work. So in other words, the the Son of God as mediator was sent to obey his Father. The Son was sent to obey. He obeyed his Father by carrying out the plan they had set from before the foundation of the world. That plan would mean that Jesus would be completely devoted to total and absolute obedience. That would be his commitment. He had made that promise in eternity. Obedience to the plan of of redemption. Obedience to his father's law. Obedience to the one work given him to do, which was only finished in his death. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, being made in the likeness, or taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The Father and the Son had this eternally old plan and the son executed it with perfect obedience and because of that obedience God honored his son and bestowed upon him that name that is above every name of which all of that activity redounds to someone's glory the father's the father's glory everything all of history all the work of Jesus all the work of the Holy Spirit redounds to the glory of God the Father. And dear brothers and sisters, this obedience to his Father was, as he says, his food. It's his food. In other words, obeying his Father was soul-refreshing. His obedience was pleasant, just as food is body-refreshing and pleasant, right? Matthew Henry says he made his father's work his business and delight. When his body needed food, his mind was so taken up with this that he forgot both hunger and thirst, both meat and drink. In other words, Jesus had something that pushed him that was not just a bodily need. He found sustenance and joy and refreshment in obeying his father in doing his work, in in fulfilling God's commands to save men. Now, can I make a simple application out of that example of Jesus? Do you have that kind of motivation in you? Do you have a hunger and thirst to do God's will? Do you delight in obedience to God? I mean, delight in it. Or are all of your, are all of the appetites you have bodily? 
Do you spend your day trying to serve your bodily appetites, your lusts, your hunger, your vanity, right? Do you have more desire to have bodily muscles than spiritual muscles, right? You're motivated to lift weights because that will make you attractive to women, possibly. Do you have, but do you have that kind of motivation to to train yourself by God's word through discipline, through reading, through praying, through memorizing? Do you live more to obey your bodily desires, which can be things that stimulate your mind just as your senses, right? Do you have more willingness to to obey there than you do to obey your heavenly father? Right? If you think Jesus' yoke is contrary to what he taught, burdensome, then we haven't yet learned what Jesus is teaching in this passage. It was his food to do his father's will. He craved it as much as you crave, right, the, the peri-peri wings that Nathan puts together for us at Triple B. But think about yourself. Think about it. What is it that you live for? What is it that satisfies you? Do you have a hunger for the, the Father's will or all of, or, 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 all of your hungers for, for earthly things? And, and can I put this rather bluntly? If we pursued obedience to God with the same hunger and zeal with which we pursued sexual pleasure, our lives would be radically different. Radically different. If we pursued obedience to God with the same hunger and zeal with which we pursued a bowl of ice cream, our lives would be radically different. None of us have oohed and awed over God's glory this morning. But if we put a bowl of ice cream in front of us, man, our eyes would light up. We do an awe talk about this texture and that flavor and those veins of, of, you know, salted caramel, right? If we pursued obedience to God with the same, same hunger and zeal with which we pursued financial gain, right, our lives would be radically different. And how pathetic it is for me to say that. And for, for that to be true of me and us. What is it that you think of first when you wake up in the morning? Is it eggs and bacon in the fridge that you get up to fry that captures your first thought? What do I get to eat this morning? Sometimes it's that. Oftentimes it's that. I'm sure it is. It is with me. Or is it that you have a simple thought, that you have a new day to live for God. A new day to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. A new day to do good works and obey God. To be an ambassador, right, for a gracious and merciful God. To take, you have a new day to take thoughts captive in obedience to Christ. 
Your thoughts were out of whack the day before. Now's a new day. God's mercies are new. And you say, okay, time to take thoughts captive. And that's going to be my food today. That's what I want to eat. Is it that you get to mortify your flesh, to buffet the body and make it your slave? Or is it that you get to have several cups of caffeine in the morning? Um, Contrast that with what Jesus considered to be his food. Pray that God would allow us to put everything in the proper place and that obedience to him would indeed be the joy, you know, more joy than we have in a burrito the size of our leg, right? And these are the things we get excited. These are the things we have zeal for, right? May our may our appetites be for spiritual things that, and may we be devoted to obedience, and may we find obedience joy, right? That is possible for the Christian. Find obedience, in fact, that, that is necessary, that, that obedience be our greatest joy, that we, we delight to please our Father. And that was the way that Jesus lived. That, that is everything written in the Gospels. It is just one, one example after another of Jesus living for the will of his Father, loving his Father, going away to get away from people so that he could just spend the night in prayer with his Father. Right? Just, just loving his father. And when, when you wake up in the morning, our, our first thought should be, today I get to obey my father. Because after all, I, I, if I love Jesus, he said I'd obey his commands. Others may serve their hunger, but I have food that only my brothers and sisters in Christ know about. And that's to do, that's to have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And, and we should say to ourselves, today, today, I'm going to, I'm going to, that's going to be my hunger. Today, that's, that's what I will serve, is that hunger for, to do God's will. Today, I will obey. Today, I will honor God. Today, I will silence the siren call of all those other appetites. And I will walk in holiness, right? Today, I will be awake to how my lust drag me around to how I serve them time and time and time again, right? And I'll pray that God gives me a desire to, for holiness that, that obliterates the hunger I have for my lusts. So what is your food? How have you fed yourself today? How, how have we any taste for the kind of food Jesus had? Do we have any taste for that? At the end of the day, would we be satisfied having just grown in holiness? Or does it need to be just growing in holiness in three hours of Netflix binging? That's a satisfying day, right? Three hours of gaming, three hours of whining, right? That's, a, that's an American pastime, whining, complaining. Grass is always green on the other side for us, isn't it? Three hours of binge eating. Three hours of, of social media voyeurism. Is that your food? Oh, man. I'll be quiet before I get convicted. No, I'm very convicted by all of these things. 
right? I, where is my hunger? My hunger is often set on the world, way too often, and it's sin. I think you get my point. God, have mercy on us. Jesus goes on from the statement about his food and applies it directly to the, his, his disciples. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Right, so he's... Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus has been working. He himself has been engaged in harvesting, right? He's just talked to the woman at the well. He's engaged in this. Yes, he's thirsty. Yes, he's hungry. But he's given himself to the work of ministries. And now he is pushing his disciples to work, to get to work too, to work on what is lasting work. He's, he's taken a common proverb, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Perhaps speaking of a time, the time it commonly took to grow crops uh, in that area. Jesus, though, says that it's harvest time. It's come. Look up. You're not even looking up. Look up and look at the fields. They're white for harvest. Right? The fruit is ready to harvest. No time to wait. There's urgency to this work. If one does not bring in the harvest when it is ready, that harvest goes to waste. It's ruined. Right? The reapers of the harvest are working and pulling in their fruit. Likewise, these disciples should discover, and is having spoken with the woman at the well, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The harvest has come, and it's time to reap. And this harvest is not an earthly harvest, but this is a harvest for eternal life. There had been sowing work to do. Right, The prophets of old sowed about the kingdom. John the Baptist then announced that the kingdom was coming and the king was coming. And Jesus had been sowing by preaching about repentance and the kingdom of God being at hand. Now the disciples, right, that Jesus is training get to enter into, into this work when it is harvest time. The sower sowed in hope that fruit would come. Now others get to uh, that, that joy of reaping what others had sown. Now we reason within ourselves that the fields were white for harvest during Jesus' time because he was there and John the Baptist had been there and we see the amazing harvest of souls that came to the church during the, the book of Acts, um, right? We see the fruit just continue to come from this point. There's harvesting and harvesting and harvesting 3,000 in one day, right? 5,000 in one day. Um, but we reason, look, we saw that fruit and the fruit, and we saw it in the, the Acts of the Apostles, but the fields are no longer white for harvest. That's how we reason. The fields certainly here around us are not white for harvest. Right? We, instead, we, we, we see hardness of heart and a growing hatred for Christ and the things of God. We, we resonate more with Christ's directions for the 
the disciples to brush the dust off their feet when they leave an unbelieving city, right, than we do, the fields are white for harvest, get out there and go to work. We live in an age when everyone does what is right in his own eyes, we say, right? And are the, are the fields really still white for harvest? And then we get redemptive historical and very sophisticated and say, well, he's only speaking about his time period, and so he's not making a principal statement about, you know, the evangelism and the fruit of the work of evangelism. And so, yeah, it is only that time, and we really don't have fields that are white for harvest. Are the fields really white for harvest? And, and my answer is yes and no. Yes and no. Yes, in that one soul is worth infinitely more than all the wealth of this world. Right? One soul saved is, is worth more than ever, anything created. Right? The wealth of this world will come to an end, but one soul is eternal. In that sense, the reaping of even one soul is a bumper crop. One soul, eternal weight. In that sense, the fields are and will always remain white for harvest. They will always be white for harvest. In another sense, I'd say that there are special times when the Spirit blows about in some place and brings revival. A place that was not white for harvest becomes white for harvest. Fields that were once without fruitfulness become those fields that are filled with harvestable fruit. There may be places in this world that are not in the grips of Satan's blinding influence today. Places where revival is happening. Places even where a genuine work of the Spirit is leading souls to eternal life. But we pray that that kind of Spirit work comes to our land. Right? Or at least we should pray that way. So that the, the, the fields become right for harvest. Jonathan Edwards and other pastors of his time in America, Whitfield, Tennant, called these outpourings the surprising work of the Spirit. Edwards said of these surprising works, the work of God is carried on with greater speed and swiftness, and there are often instances of sudden conversions at such a time. So it was in the apostles' days when there was a time of the most extraordinary pouring out of the Spirit that ever was. How quick and sudden were conversions in those days. So it is in some degree whenever there is an extraordinary pouring out of the Spirit of God, more or less so, in proportion to the greatness of the pouring. And so it must be said that this view of revivals and the necessary work of the Spirit is in line with our very view of regeneration and the new birth that must take place before someone believes. The Spirit has to work or there will be no harvest at all. Right? That, that is fundamentally true. There won't be a harvest at all ever. And here's another thing that must be said when we mention revivals. In a sense, we can put it this way. Those, um, those we refer to these as extraordinary works of the Spirit, they are actually ordinary in the sense that they are not miraculously different from the, ex the regular experience of the church. Right? 
Um, Ian Murray says, in an outpouring of the Spirit, spiritual influence is more widespread, convictions run deeper, and feelings more intense, but all this is only a heightening of normal Christianity. It's just a, it's just a, a hyper, it's just an intensely dense time period, but every conversion happens the same way, even if it's one, Right? True revivals are extraordinary, yet what is experienced at such times is not different in essence from the spiritual experience that belongs to Christians at any other time. So every conversion is a work of the Spirit, but there are times when the work of the Spirit can be described as an outpouring. At those times, those fields are obviously white for harvest. So though we live in a time when the hardness of people's hearts seems very clear, We must pray. We must pray that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon those around us. The American Puritans did not expect the the hardness of the people's hearts would be softened. They lived in a spiritually difficult time too. They lived when people were throwing off God for wealth. What's new? Right? That that time had a a hardness of of its own, and yet... They saw this outpouring of the Spirit. Our evangelistic efforts, which we would would never give give up, no matter how hard the ground is that we're trying to plow, will nevertheless have little effect unless the Spirit works. Right? And because of that, we, we must give ourselves to prayer. Right? More prayer. Asking God, uh, the Spirit, to work. Then... We must pray asking the Spirit to work and spend less time honing our evangelistic techniques. Blah. The evangelistic technique is to go and harvest. Right? Some of you will say different things than I will. Some of you have read different books. Some of you had different experiences. But if the fields are white for harvest, you're going to put your sickle in and you're going to pull out souls. Right? So often, though, we come up, it, it's, there's so much hardness of heart. There's so much fearfulness. There's so much malaise and depression in this land, right? And so we need to pray for revival. We need to pray. Um, why does prayer for revival not occupy more of our time? Well, it's because we're discouraged. We're just discouraged. And when we are discouraged, it's hard to exercise our faith. And when we lack faith, we assume God will not work. But we mustn't assume that, and we must remember that God is still at work, and God could very, very, very quickly change the hearts of our nation. Likely, that will start by repentance of his own people in their churches. Right Next, by their earnest prayer for revival. Then, by God's grace... A pouring out of the Spirit. Jesus told his disciples to lift up their eyes and look on the fields. In our discouragement, we often refuse even to lift up our eyes and look. I've looked before and the fields didn't seem to have any fruit. But perhaps that's where we need to start. Lift up our eyes 
rather than fixing our eyes and ears on the pagans at Fox News, the pagans at Fox News, we need to get our eyes off of that, stop getting discouraged, and perhaps remember Jesus' words here and the many examples that we have throughout history of the surprising work of the Spirit. Things change quickly. Things change very quickly when God works. Very quickly. And remember what comes next in our passage that we covered last time, right? We go 31 to 38, and then we go to Samaria and Sychar. This is a Samaritan town. The Jews have no dealings with them. They'd be the last people that, that, that the d- disciples would think were ready for harvest, and yet, boom, revival breaks out in Sychar, right? Revival breaks out in this Samaritan town. God will do something like that. He, he, and, and maybe God has. Revival is breaking out in Latin America and Africa as Europe and America are left behind. That is how God would work. He would rebuke us for, for leaving off our heritage and he would bring to those we least expected would come to him. Right Here it is in the town of Sychar and these Samaritans, these half-breeds that the Jews would have nothing to do with. There's revival. And now, and now these disciples get to walk into the city and begin reaping. They didn't have to do any of the preliminary work. All they get is the joy of harvesting, bringing in the fruit. What joy would that be? Right? What joy would that be? But that's a microcosm of what it could be for you. Continue to plant seeds and plant and plant and plant and plant and plant. Someone else may get to reap the harvest for which you've done the planting. Right? It may be that way. You may, get to, you may labor your whole life, see very little fruit and die, and then those seeds come to maturity. And God will keep you humble by doing it that way. And you can praise him for that.